I'm Elizabeth Rushing, and this is Humanity in War, an ICRC podcast on all things humanitarian law and policy. Attacks on and military use of education facilities frequently occur during armed conflict, disrupting and destroying education and the opportunities that it brings. When affected populations lose access to education, they lose the protection it offers to children and young people. Protecting and ensuring access to education during conflict is enshrined in international humanitarian law and is thus a core part of the humanitarian mission. Today, I'm speaking with two experts on the life-saving and protective value of education, and we'll be focusing on the legal and policy influence on protecting access to education during armed conflict. So to begin our conversation today, we have with us Michel Onglade, who is the director of the Save the Children's Office in Geneva, representing Save the Children to the United Nations. And he's here today with us representing the Global Coalition to Protect Education from Attack, the GCPEA, which is a coalition chaired by Save the Children. Welcome, Michel. It is a pleasure to have you join us today. My pleasure as well to be here with you. Thank you. So to begin with, Michel, could you please lay out the context for us and outline what the problem is we're talking about today? What does an attack on education look like? Who does it involve? And if you could share some examples of the reasons that they have been carried out in the past. Yeah, many thanks, Lizzie. Um, I mean, first of all, I would like to start with highlighting, I mean, the, the scale of a problem. It's really something which in my view, is underreported, and we are not speaking enough about it. So it's great to have this discussion, this conversation today. According to the Global Coalition to Protect Education from Attacks, in 2022, there were more than 3,000 attacks on education, and that's a 17% increase compared to the previous year. GCP as well, the coalition, found that the military use of school increased in 2022 with over 500 reported cases of military use of school. And overall, more than 6,000 students and educators were either killed, injured, abducted, arrested, or armed during these attacks, an increase as well of 20% compared to 2021. So we can see that attacks on education are unfortunately happening on a large scale, are not addressed as much as they should be, and obviously they have a huge impact on education. There are millions of children deprived of an education because of attacks on their school. I would like maybe to zoom on one country to give you an example. You may remember that in 2014, there were the abduction of girls from a school in uh, the northern part of Nigeria, uh, the Shibok girls, and it made the headlines all over the world. People were campaigning to have these girls who had been abducted, been released, and they were, most of them, released. However, Savage and we released last week a report showing that these attacks on education in Nigeria have continued since then. They are no longer in the headlines of, uh, of the media, yet it's still a large-scale problem. We recorded, I mean, Savage and more than 70 attacks on school in northern Nigeria during 2014 to uh, 2022. Close to 1,700 students have been kidnapped from schools in Nigeria and over 180 school children were killed or injured during these attacks. It's just one country, but unfortunately, the situation I'm describing in northern Nigeria happened in many countries around the world. 
what is an attack on education? I mean, uh, the uh, Global Coalition to Protect Education from Attack referred to any threats or use of force against students, teachers, academics, schools and universities perpetrated by armed forces as an attack on education. I would like maybe to stress one point here. Sometimes the threat is enough to have a, a school being closed, to have students no longer going to school or to have teachers basically no longer willing to teach because of the, uh, the threats on their life. And, and that's an important aspect also to keep in mind. Regarding the reason why education comes under attack, I mean, they vary. The Global Coalition to Protect Education from Attack just released research on the motivation of non-state armed groups to attack education facilities. And there were different reasons being mentioned. The first one is that sometimes the schools and the staff are being seen as the symbols of the states they oppose, the states they uh, fight against. So therefore, being seen as you know, the symbol of, of a state, it's come under attack for these reasons. Schools are also soft targets. I mean, they are not usually being being guarded, and therefore, because they are soft targets, they also come under attack. Some reasons also were, which were mentioned is that it may produce significant media attention, which is also something sometimes non-state armed groups would like to have to seek media coverage, and therefore, attack on school, attack large-scale attack on school could be a way of attracting this, this media coverage. We have seen also some Sometimes schools coming under attack because non-state armed groups may oppose the curriculum being used in this school. I've seen this, for example, in the Sahel, where the curriculum may be seen by some non-state armed groups as not, let's say, in line with their ideology and with the ideas they, they promote. Schools also have been targeted for recruitment in uh, non-state armed groups, where we, the school is being attacked for abducting both boys who may be enrolled in the uh, in, in the ranks of the non-state armed groups, also girls who may be forced to work or forced to marry some of the fighters. So there are a lot of different reasons why schools may, may come under attack. And we need, obviously, to address all these reasons if we want to better protect schools from attack. That's something which is, uh, which is absolutely key. Regarding also the military use of school, you mentioned sometimes these schools are being used by either non-state armed groups or regular armies uh, because they basically provide shelters. There are some maybe facilities in the schools and they are being used as, as barracks, which also obviously has a huge impact on the access to education for children living in conflict areas. Thank you, Michel. And thank you for your work on providing reliable data and definitions. I think, you know, we say where I grew up, you have to name it to tame it. And really, you can't really move forward with any solution before you carefully construct and identify the problem. So thank you for laying that out for us. And you also go into the why, which is crucial. Understanding the motivations has to be the first step for prevention as well. So I'd like to turn to you now, Mark, for another kind of why, which is why why are we talking about education as a priority, which is, you know, inherently quite obvious to most of it, but nonetheless needs to be very, very clearly laid out. So for this, we're welcoming into the studio Mark Chappell, who's with us at the ICRC working on education. 
And you've had 14 years of experience on this topic from Zimbabwe, South Sudan, Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey to Syria and Iraq. Thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And so, as we know, education has a very transversal aspect that provides opportunity and the ability to transform every new generation. And as we've already just discussed, it has a strong protective element. So in this sense, Mark, can you paint us a picture of how and why it's so crucial for access and continuity of education to remain protected during armed conflict? Sure, yeah. And as you said, education doesn't just provide hope and aspirations for the future as well as vital skills for communities. It, it also has really a significant protective value for the children and for their parents. You know, I think many of us around the world saw during the COVID pandemic that when children were kept out of school, when schools were closed, we saw a rise in protection issues globally. And not just connected to COVID, but broader than that, we've seen a lot of research showing how protective education can be. Broadly, schools themselves are safe places where children can learn safely and be protected from other risks, free from exposure to other risks. You know, we see in many communities affected by crisis that when children aren't in school, they're exposed to things like early marriage, uh, child labour, recruitment into armed forces and armed groups, other uh, risks of exploitation or abuse might take place. As well as this, the school themselves offer other services like access to healthcare services, nutrition, meals, referrals into social services. So when children are in school, they're generally safe and protected. You know, example from some of our work in South Sudan, the children who we were able to support to access education safely were therefore able to avoid being recruited into armed forces and armed groups and also avoid uh, early marriage or child marriage. So education in that context had a very real life-changing impact and protective impact. As well as this kind of protective nature, we also know it improves mental health and well-being and can help reduce the impacts of the trauma experienced by children during conflict and violence. And alongside this, you know, the reason we should prioritise it is because this is what children and communities prioritise. Uh, research done by uh, Michelle's colleagues uh, years ago at Save the Children showed that 99% of children in conflict and crisis prioritised education as, as the first service they wanted to receive. You know, they want their life to go back to normal. They want a chance to learn and they want a chance to build a life for themselves and education can provide that. And, you know, if we are being accountable to the people we work with, we need to listen to their wishes, we need to listen to what they prioritise. And so you ask why continuity of education is important. We know the longer children are out of school, the less likely they are to return to school. And this not only has consequences for them and their personal development, but for the future stability and the development of the communities they're in. When education is interrupted by conflict for a long time, we are at a real risk of creating a lost generation of children in that context. So as humanitarians, we must work together to find ways of ensuring that education is protected and safe access is assured and that learning can continue in conflict and crisis. Thank you, Mark. And that leads me seamlessly to my next question, which is what are we doing, given this impact and the added values that you mentioned of education as active aspect? Can you illustrate the work that the ICRC does and how our core mandate in relation to international humanitarian law allows for such projects to be carried out. Sure. So as, uh, as you mentioned, the protection of education, and in some cases the provision of education during conflict, 
is enshrined in IHL, primarily in the Fourth Geneva Convention and a number of additional protocols. So this really speaks to our mandate, to what we do. And, you know, ICRC is very much focused on protecting education and ensuring safe access to education. And the reason we do this, rather than perhaps leave it to others, is that we have privileged access. We have a real added value to the sector, the education emergency sector, through our access. Our access to geographical areas close to front lines, areas controlled by non-state armed groups that in some cases no other actor, no other international or humanitarian actor is able to access. And we also have access to the parties to the conflict, the people with the guns. And because of our mandate, because of our relationships and our ability to engage in dialogue with these groups, again, we have the ability to highlight IHL, highlight the provisions in there for protection of education and work with these armed groups to try and ensure education is protected in their areas of operation. Our response, though, isn't just focused on our protection, our protection dialogue. We have a multidisciplinary response, uh, which involves all our teams, from protection, through assistance, through legal, through our cooperation with movement colleagues as well. And in this case, not only do we conduct the protection dialogue with parties to conflict to protect schools from attack and military use, we also have dialogue with military forces uh, to support them to move their military facilities and installations away from schools. And we've had some success in that in a number of places where military checkpoints, military outposts have been moved away from schools or access routes to schools, which then encourage access and safe access to education. Our weapons contamination teams do risk awareness and safer behaviour training programmes, which is working with children, teachers and communities to help them understand the risks in those communities and better safely respond to those risks so they feel safer about going to school, even when there are risks in those communities. And of course, we do do direct assistance where other actors are not present, where other people can't respond. And that might be rehabilitation of schools. It might be uh, temporary learning spaces. It might be distribution of education materials or inclusion in our cash distribution to support learning in a safe and protected environment. And given our also our privileged access to places of detention, we also work on advocating with detention authorities for provision of education for children, young people, juveniles in detention so they can continue to learn whilst they're detained. I think it's important also to note what we don't do and what we're not trying to be. You know, Michelle is here from Save the Children and you know, they have a lot of focus on what happens inside the classroom as well. The quality of the learning, focusing on learning outcomes. As ICRC, we're not that agency. Our work is to protect education and make sure education can continue in a safe learning environment. But what happens in the classroom, with some exceptions like our risk awareness and safer behaviour training, uh, we don't tend to engage in that. We don't engage in discussions around curriculum, around academic achievement. We make sure it ha can happen, education can continue and education is safe. But this is where external coordination, working with Save the Children, other partners in the education cluster and the relevant ministries of education in the areas we're working in is key. Because without that coordination, they're the people who provide the teaching. So in many contexts where we work, we might rehabilitate a school, we might provide notebooks, pads and pens, but it's the teachers who will continue to do the learning and ICRC don't provide those teachers. So yeah, uh, external coordination, cooperation, collaboration is really key to make sure our work is sustainable for the long term as well. Thank you, Mark. And thanks for laying out, you know, our clear 
comparative advantage, because of course there's a lot of parts to this puzzle to make this work. So with that in mind, I'd like to turn back to you, Michel. And uh, as Mark says, what we don't do, you're picking up a lot of the slack there in this uh, brain as well. So could you please lay out for us the work that organizations such as Save the Children and the GCPEA, what they conduct for those targeted and why it's important for states and parties to uphold international declarations like the Safe Schools Declaration? Many thanks for, for this question. Uh, for first of all, if I may, I would like to go back to a point Mark just made, which is, I think, very important. In a lot of humanitarian crises, if you look like maybe a decade ago or certainly two decades ago, humanitarian needs were basically seen as water sanitation, health, food, but nobody was mentioning education. And yet, as Mark highlighted, when we ask in crises, when we ask in countries affected by conflict, when we ask to both, you know, I mean, adults and children, what is your number one priority? Education comes first. And I think that's something, obviously, which, which tells us a lot. And we are here in Geneva. If we were doing a survey in Geneva, I'm sure that if you ask parents what's, you know, your number one priority, a lot of them will say, well, I hope I my children will be successful in school. And yet, you know, I mean, parents in countries affected by conflict are, are no different. They want their children to have access to education. They want their children to have access to quality education. And I think that's something extremely important. And that's the reason why we have seen when several children, we are delighted about this. We have seen really a huge momentum regarding the provision of education in conflict situation, in crisis. And we want to be accountable to the people we are seeking to assist. We need to provide education because that's what we ask first and foremost. Going back to your questions, I would start with a safe school declaration. I mean, the safe school declaration is uh, a political declaration which was launched in 2015 uh, by a, a few member states and which have now been endorsed by 118 states across the world. And what is this political declaration about? It's basically a commitment. It's not a legally binding document. It's a commitment by a member states to protect students, teachers, schools, universities during armed conflict. But obviously, the commitment is not enough. We need to move from, you know, endorsement to also actual implementation of a safe school declaration. So what the Global Coalition to Protect Education from Attack does, and the Global Coalition is composed of many organizations, including Save Children, we first of all advocate for the endorsement of the Safe School Declaration because we think it's an important normative framework to better protect education in situation of conflict. And we have seen some very tangible progress here. The Safe School Declaration has now been referenced in resolution adopted by the UN Security Council, has been also referenced in resolution adopted by the uh, Human Rights Council here in Geneva. So we can see this kind of normative framework uh, gaining ground, and that's uh, something which is extremely uh, positive. But uh, as I said, I mean, once a state has endorsed the declaration, they need also to take concrete steps to implement the declaration. And what we have seen here is states such as Mali and Burkina Faso have established technical committees and have developed national action plans to implement the Safe School Declaration. And that's very much needed in these two countries where, unfortunately, we have seen increased number of attacks on education. 
We have seen the uh, Central African Republic prohibiting the military use of school. These are concrete examples where the safe school declaration is being translated in countries on the ground into practical policies, laws, which basically better protect education from attack. You were mentioning as well that we need to measure as well. So the Global Coalition to Protect Education from Attacks has invested a lot in monitoring reporting on attacks on education. Before the Safe School Declaration was launched in 2015, before the Global Coalition to Protect Education from Attacks was established, there were no data on, on attacks on schools. So I think we have gone a long way in terms of better monitoring, collecting data, analyzing this data. And the Global Coalition to Protect Education from Attacks release every two years a report, a global report, uh, where all the attacks which have happened over the last two years are being reported. And that's also something which has been key in terms of advocating for better protection of education from attack. And we have seen that it does make a difference. There was a recent study done by the Global Coalition to Protect Education from Attack, which shows that in 13 countries which have endorsed the declaration in 2015, so when it was launched between 2015 and 2020, there's been a decrease, a decline in terms of the incidence of military use of school and, uh, and universities, and also in some of these countries, a decline of the attacks on education. So all these are you know, positive examples of how the Safe School Declaration is making a difference on the ground, but it can only make a difference on the ground if there are, you know, I mean, regular sustained advocacy and then translation of the principle of a safe school into, you know, changing in policies and practice. We have seen also in countries which are not directly affected by conflict, but in some countries, the military doctrine has changed to also incorporate in the military doctrine the protection of education from attacks and to make sure that also armies are aware of, you know, the fact that they should refrain from attacking schools and obviously they should refrain from attacking schools because of the huge impact it has on the children, on education, on the continuation of education. As Mark highlighted, I mean, the attacks on education not only deprive a child from, you know, having access to education, what we have seen in a lot of countries is that when a school has come under attack, Children drop from school but never return to school. So it's basically the end of their education, which is obviously a tragedy. Thank you, Michel. Thank you for outlining that. And that in mind, of course, there's no real formula for success. But with all this data and research that your team has been conducting, do you have some lessons learned that you think that we should follow in the next step? Yeah, I mean, there are many lessons learned. The first one is obviously, I mean, continuing for the endorsement of the Safe School Declaration. 118 states have endorsed it so far, but we need to, to do more. Then, uh, as I was highlighting, the second lesson learned is really ownership at the country level by all actors. And when I'm saying by all actors, it's something which is very important and that's a lesson learned. We should not only work with the Ministry of Education, we should work also with, you know, Ministry of Defense, we should work also with all ministries. So we should work with a lot of different actors across the government. We obviously need also to engage much more with non-state armed groups. They are responsible for the majority of attacks on education. So we need to work basically with all stakeholders to have an impact. Then this ownership 
as I was mentioning with example from Burkina Faso, from Mali, we need to make sure that this ownership translates into real action on the ground. So it's not only about, you know, yes, my government has endorsed the safe school declaration. What my government is doing to implement the safe school declaration. So I mentioned example from Mali and Burkina Faso. I would like also to mention example from Nigeria, where following the endorsement of a safe school declaration by Nigeria, there was a development of a trainer's guide for their national forces. A safe school policy also was uh, developed and adopted by a Nigerian government. And more recently, they established a financing safe school facility to ensure that these activities could be implemented. Government of Mali, I already mentioned, established the first national committee to uh, to guide the implementation of a safe school declaration. And then there were local technical committees as well, which were established to uh, oversee the implementation of a safe school declaration. And Mali is currently working on draft law to protect education from attacks. So these are also examples of, in terms of lesson learned, the ownership is key to move forward for in, in terms of implementation. Lesson learned as well is that we should not see and This point was already made by Mark. We should not see the protection of education in isolation from the overall protection agenda. That's something which is uh, absolutely key. And also from the the role the Safe School Declaration can play to set up norms in terms of protection from education. So working, engaging with with UN Security Council, engaging with the Human Rights Council is also key to make sure that step by step the protection of education from attacks is widely accepted and recognized, also something which is uh, which is important. And that's where the Safe School Declaration allows some flexibility in some sense, because it's not a legally binding document. But step by step, we can see that it's creating norms, which is, which is what we wish to better protect education from attack. One lesson then as well was has been over the last you know few years that we need really to develop a community of practice we need to encourage government to discuss with government we have seen this for the endorsement of a safe school declaration where you know the global coalition to protect education from attacks over actors were doing some advocacy work and it was not working and it's when the armed forces of a country speak with the armed forces of another country to say yes I think you know the safe school declaration is a good thing we have also reviewed our military doctrine we think that's something which is adding value so also to promote this kind of peer-to-peer exchange especially between armed forces between ministry of defense has been something which has been very useful and because it was very useful There was in 2021 the establishment of a state-led implementation network, which is an initiative led by the government of Norway, and we think it's important that it's government-led, led by the government of Norway, which created basically a forum for the states which have endorsed the Safe School Declaration to exchange on good practices, but also on the challenges they have faced to implement the Safe School Declaration, and also to identify further areas where training could be needed to better protect education from attack. So to, to develop this kind of community of practice has been something uh, extremely useful. A lesson learned as well is to have state championing this cause and we had you know i mean several states who had really said well yeah we want protection of education from attack to be a key priority for us and that's something which has been also i think a game changer to better protect education from attack and maybe the last point as well is about you know looking at this some states championing this cause we have seen also more and more 
funding being allocated both to the provision of education in uh, in conflict situation as well to the protection of education and that's also something which is positive so these are some of the lesson learns and obviously i mean working in working in coalition working in broad coalition and not seeing education in silos has been absolutely key i think to promote this agenda and to ensure better protection of education in conflict thank you very much michel mark I just wanted to come in on that as well, because as Michelle said, although the Safe Schools Declaration isn't IHL and isn't legally binding, it is something that ICRC support, and we support the endorsement and the implementation of it by state parties. And to that end, we, we collaborate with Michelle and colleagues at the Global Coalition to Protect Education for Attack at a global level, but also colleagues at field level. We also work with Save the Children, GCPA, to try and support governments to understand the full implications of Safe School Declaration. And indeed, we've been supporting colleagues in a number of delegations because, again, our added value, as Michelle was saying, not just working in collaboration, but we have some of those entry points to Ministry of Foreign Affairs or Ministry of Defence that NGOs perhaps might not have. So together, we can really help work with state parties and reassure them about the implications of becoming a signatory to the SSD. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for underlining, again, that complementary role that we all have a part to play and how that comes together. And thank you to Michel for really outlining and summarizing the the environment building that has to go in for any action to be taken from paper to policy to reality. I really appreciate that. Um, not to make you the bearer of bad news, Mark, but can you really bring us back to the cautionary tale of when these are not respected? What are the long-term effects that we're looking at when states and parties do not adhere to these frameworks? And what are the biggest obstacles in place that we need to remove? Yeah, I think we've talked a little bit about you know how, how protective education is and that ensuring access to education is first and foremost a protective service. So if that's not there, these children are exposed to a huge amount of, of other risks. Um, but we also know that education is one of the first services to stop when conflict breaks out. As you can imagine, children, families stay home from school because they're scared, because they don't know what's happening out there. And unless there's humanitarian intervention, it's often one of the last services to restart when conflict abates. So it's really critical that there's external humanitarian support to ensure access to education can continue during conflict and crisis. If it's not protected, if it doesn't continue, then it can have far-reaching consequences for societies, which can include, as we see in many cases, a kind of push factor. So population movement to areas where education is provided. As Michelle said, people prioritise education. If, if their children can't get education in that context, they will move to somewhere where their children get education, where their children are safe. Totally understandable impulse. It can, it can also lead to this exposure to protection risks and a kind of hollowing out of society, what we might call a brain drain, where people with high levels of education or those who are studying with to gain the skills and experience necessary to run a functioning society leave that society. This lack of qualified professionals means that there's nobody there to run hospitals, to run public institutions, to run schools. It means a, a lack of economic development and therefore an increase in poverty. And perhaps most importantly for ICRC, quite a lot of research has been done that shows there's a direct correlation between low levels of education and high levels of conflict and violence. So if we're really 
you know, aiming to reduce conflict, violence, war and instability around the world, it's important we protect education. Because when education is disrupted by conflict, it can sadly fuel future conflict and instability. So it's our role as a humanitarian, as upholder of IHL, and with the aim of reducing future conflict to support and protect safe access to education. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. And yes, thinking about these bleak worst case scenarios are also a first step to preventing them from becoming a reality. They are very much the case currently, unfortunately, in many contexts today. I'd like to also end the conversation by addressing the fact that we've really been talking about children and young people as sort of a blanket statement or a linear population, but of course they're individuals with individual needs. So I'd like to end the conversation talking about two specific groups. I know that the Global Coalition for the Protection of Education from Attack is focused on girls' access to education. So Michelle, I would really love to hear from you first about some of the priorities that your organizations have outlined to this end. Yeah, Indeed, the, the Global Coalition to Protect Education from Attacks, I mean, as a, a gender lens for, for all its work, its activities. And that's something which is absolutely key. I mean, Mark was highlighting this point right now, but girls' education, it's not only about, you know, the, the benefit is not only about girls having, you know, access to education. You can see that a girl who is better educated, the mother who is better educated, there are direct correlations with, you know, child malnutrition, direct correlation with child mortality and so on and so forth. So the benefit of girls' education for a society is, is absolutely tremendous. What we have seen, I mean, as the Global Coalition to Protect Education from Attack is that there are definitely, in some context, a huge gender dimensions regarding the attacks on education. The, the Global Coalition in the Education Under Attack Report of 2022, we identified 11 countries where girls and women were targeted because of their gender. So there was a direct, you know, correlations between the gender and the attacks on education for, for different reasons. It could be because, you know, some non-state armed groups, for example, maybe oppose uh, girls having access to, to education for ideological reasons or different reasons. We have seen also attacks on education happening because non-state armed groups would like to kidnap girls. Most often, in, most often these girls are then uh, sexually exploited, forced marriage, forced incorporation in non-state armed groups. So there's also this dimension as well of targeting girls for these reasons. The impact of this is huge in the sense that in any circumstances, unfortunately, in a lot of countries, there's already a gender dimensions regarding access to education, where girls may have less access to education than boys. But then this threat against girls, the attacks against girls, means that in a lot of these contexts, girls no longer go to school at all, which has a huge impact, obviously, on the girls themselves, but also, as Mark was highlighting, on the overall society. So that's the reason why... We think that in all contexts, we need to have this very strong gender analysis of the protection of education from attacks, trying to identify the specific risk girls face, what are the kind of specific threats they face as, as girls, and what are the kind of protective measures which could be, you know, I mean, uh, gender sensitive to better protect the education of girls 
and to make sure that they are also better protected from from the kind of attacks and violence they may face as girls. Obviously, that's something which could not be as a lot of gender aspects separated from the overall protection of girls in in, in conflict because a lot of these issues are, are linked. Thank you, Michel. And, uh, back to you, Mark, for a second particular group with specific vulnerabilities, and that would be children with disabilities. I think the latest statistics are one in six persons on the planet are living with a disability. What is the protection work that must go towards accessibility and inclusive assistance to this population? Yeah, thank you. And I think with ICRC's work, particularly in conflict zones, our PRP, our prosthetics and orthotics centres, work with children and young people to support them, children and young people who've been injured during conflict and crisis. We support them to get replacement limbs or supports fitted. And in these cases, they may be patients in these PRP centres for months at a time. And when they're there, we try to ensure they have access to education. Either we have a teacher on site um, or we work with local authorities to ensure a teacher can come in. And as well as that, we have mental health and psychosocial support specialists there to help the children deal with the trauma they've experienced through being injured during, during conflict and hostilities. In some cases as well, we support these children when they've left the centres to access education, have continued access to education, either through transport or through tutorial schemes, depending on the context. So that's an area where we work very closely with, with children with a specific vulnerability that we're working with through some of our other programmes as well. More, more generally, where we do, say, uh, rehabilitation of centres, education centres or schools, we try to endeavour to make sure they're accessible for children with physical disabilities, so for wheelchair users, etc., including latrines and sanitary facilities. And then also through kind of direct cash assistance for families where there are children or adults with disabilities, we recognise they have additional vulnerabilities and in many cases additional barriers to accessing safe education. So we may give extra assistance to those families and to those children to make sure that they don't face these barriers and they can access safe education in conflict and crisis. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. And I, I will ask one last question, which is this recording today is just before the International Day for the Protection of Education from Attack on September 9th, but I believe we'll release it just afterwards. What be the one key message for our listeners to take away? I would say that, you know, education first and foremost is a protective service and education must be protected. If education isn't protected in these countries, we really risk short-term damage to children and young people and long-term damage to the stability and the future of those countries. Even in conflict situations, we can see that children want to go to school, want to have access to quality education, and under no circumstances we can tolerate attacks on school, attacks on education. That's a tragedy. That's the life of children which basically end in the sense that their access to education unfortunately end and therefore they no longer see any future for them and that's something which is also in turn can fuel conflict. So therefore the protection of education is more necessary than ever and we should all work together to ensure that all children in conflict situation have access to safe and quality education. Thank you. Thank you both. And 
I'm not going to lie, this has been quite depressing in many ways, this conversation, some very heartbreaking dichotomies of the importance, the tremendous impact of keeping girls in school, but them sometimes being the first to, to leave, the importance of education in the long term, but it being the first to go in situations of armed conflict. But I am going to come away holding very close to my heart at least one of the statistics that you shared, Michelle, which is 13 countries who were adhering to the framework of the safe school declarations, you did see a decrease in the use of schools by militaries and armed groups and in attacks on those schools. And I think that that's, you know, the star that we need to look towards in these next steps. And I really thank you for your time today and for your energy, both in the conversation, but of course, in the broader day-to-day work that you're both doing, you and the organizations that you represent as well. So thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Humanity in War, be sure to check out the ICRC's Humanitarian Law and Policy blog at blogs.icrc.org slash lawandpolicy, a library of posts, all with audio reads on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. 